Shabbat Shalom, everyone. One of the, uh, the things I neglected to mention when giving a blessing to Elijah and Jillian is that we say in our prayers, me door la door from one generation to the next. And today, I know that Elijah is wearing his grandfather of blessed memories talit, and Jillian is wearing Elijah's talit, and we pray that the memory of all those people that we remember always sit on your shoulders like you are today, and always remember that sense of responsibility and pride in carrying one tradition onto the next. I, uh, I want to tell you a story that happened in my house this week. I get a phone call Wednesday afternoon, like maybe 6.30. 6.30, Tuesdays and Wednesdays here at the synagogue is not a uh, quiet time. Very busy, religious school, Hebrew school activities, Torah study, all these things happening. And my wife goes, something stinks at home. You need to come home and smell it which is like classic for most women in the world because we can go out to eat and I'll take a bite of fish, the fish tastes terrible, and I'll say, excuse me, waiter, there's something wrong with the fish. But if she orders the same fish, it tastes terrible, she goes, here, taste this, and then she calls the waiter. So I don't quite get why I need to come home to smell the terrible smell, but I listened to her and I came home, we finished Minion at 7.15 and I run home with 10 minutes to smell the smell and kiss the kids and then you know go back to teach our Torah Institute. And as soon as I walked in the house, she was right. Something didn't smell right, and something didn't smell good. And I was afraid it was a gas leak. So the first thing I did was I said to everyone in the house, out of the house. So my mother's with us. She got out of the house. The kids got out of the house. The kids just got out of the bath, and they're dripping wet standing outside. Dory's out of the house. We're holding our puppy in our hand, and we're all standing outside the house, and we call PSE&G, and they say, we're on our way, we'll be there within an hour, but you need to call the fire department. So we call the fire department, and the next thing you know, there is a cavalry from Closter standing you know, in our driveway with lights and sirens and everything, and I'm thinking, Mike, I gotta go teach in five minutes at the Torah Institute, and the dog is like going crazy from all the stuff. The kids think it's a circus outside the house, and I'm worried that it's all gonna blow up in a minute because there's a gas leak. At the same time, the PSE&G guy comes, and he sees we're holding the dog, and he says, do you guys have any birds? I said, no, we don't have any birds. We just have two kids and a dog. He says, well, the real way to tell if you have a gas leak is if you have a bird. Because if your bird is dead, then you have a gas leak. I said, okay, thank you. And then he started to give us a lesson of which I knew, but it was good to be reminded. And he said, you know, in the old days, the coal miners, when they would go into the mines, they would send the canary in to the coal mine. And the canary, if it came out, would tell us that it was gas-free. But if it didn't come out, kind of like the dove in Noah's Ark, if it didn't come out, it told us, well, that there's gas in there because it killed it and it wouldn't come out. And that's where the phrase, by the way, the canary in the coal mine came from. And the idea was sending the canary in tells us about our fate in the future. So the canary in the coal mine would say if the canary came back out, it would be safe. And if it didn't come back out, it meant there was danger ahead. So why do I share that story with you about the smell in our house, which, thank God, is gone and had nothing to do with the gas leak and everything was fine? It might have been a result of cooking, but I'm not saying anything. <laughs> I want to focus much more on this notion of the canary in a coal mine. And while that story, thank God, became an entertaining one, uh, the story we saw last night on the news and that we're waking up to today is anything but funny and nice and humorous. What happened in Paris last night, I'm afraid, 
is just another example of the canary in the coal mine, of something that could be coming down the pike, and not if it comes to America, or to Canada, or to Mexico, or to Britain, or to Switzerland, or to Australia, or to Argentina, but when. When this will come to a Starbucks, or a Panera Bread, or a Barnes and Noble near us. In 1968, El Al Airlines was a relatively new airline, just 20 years old. And there was a case at the Switzerland airport of a flight that was going from Switzerland to Rome, and a group of armed attackers jumped onto the plane and began to hijack the plane. And at that time, they killed one person, they killed the co-pilot of the plane, and at that time, Israel said, we need to do something for our planes to change the way in which we address safety. Not a year later, again in Switzerland, which had a lot of porosity, a lot of openness when it came to security at airports, four cells of the, Palis the Liberation for Palestine Front, it was a faction of the PLO, what today is Fatah, jumped onto an El Al plane and began to hijack and take it over. A man by the name of Mordechai Rachamim, who was on the plane, he was a uh, ex-soldier from the elite unit in Israel called Sayeret Matkal. He pulled out a gun and he shot the head of the cell. The guys from the plane ran off the plane. Mordechai Rachamim jumped down from the plane and he shot some more of the men and then the Swiss police came and they arrested everyone, including Mordechai Rachamim. And they took all of them, one was killed, and took all of them to prison. They had a trial for all of them, and three of them were found guilty of uh, attempted murder and of hijacking a plane. And fortunately, after six weeks in prison, Mordechai Rachamim was acquitted of his charges. But it was at that time in 1969 that Israel had to admit that on all of its planes it had its form of air marshals. They had undercover agents who were trained, who also had weapons, who were sitting amongst the crowd, who were prepared in those moments to take over the plane should anyone seek to do it harm. It also became standard course in 1968 and in 1969 and the result of these two actions that Israel started profiling every single one of its passengers on LL planes and started to develop a technology to make the cargo holds of the airplanes bomb-proof. Now that means when you get on a plane that goes to Israel, 90% of them or 80% of them are 747, 767s, or 777s. These are what we call jumbo jets. These are large planes. They can go transatlantic. And all of your luggage in those planes go into a metal box. And then the box goes into the plane. It fits very neatly. And that has to do with weight distribution when flying so that the luggage doesn't move around. The boxes stay still. They can be locked in. And what Israel had to develop out of necessity was that it turned these boxes into boxes that are bomb-proof. So God forbid someone should put a bomb in their luggage and it should explode like what happened with Pan Am and Lockerbie. It would only explode the other luggage around it. It would vibrate the plane, but it wouldn't penetrate. And they've tried this, sadly, on all types of levels of explosives with the crazy amounts of C4. Furthermore, Israel was the first one to develop the technology that you all see in the airports when they rub your hands to see if you come in contact with any explosive devices. And Israel was the one that also started the X-raying of luggage, both as hand luggage and underneath luggage for uh, what's happening. Now in 1969, this is a really, really fascinating fact that I bet most of you didn't know. 
But the equivalent of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union Act, the equivalent of them throughout the world, but in particular in Switzerland, where both of these acts had taken place, and in the United States, and even the far left liberals in Israel, were wildly opposed to the invasiveness of the Israeli forces profiling passengers, all of them profiled, going through their personal belongings, asking their history, and they called it a violation of human rights when people were traveling. A violation of human rights. Now, if you fast forward from that time in 1969 to what? 30, 40 years later? What was it? 30 years later, I guess it was. And radical, militant terrorists hijack four airplanes and slam them into buildings in an attempt to do what? To tear down the very democracy that we believe in. Had nothing to do with other parts, right? Tear down capitalism and democracy. And as a result of that, we now have to take off our shoes at the airport, plus a lot more. Okay? We now have to go through those screening machines that wound, wind around us with some form of quick radiation that tells us if we have even a handkerchief in our back pocket in a reactive sense. And what it was really telling us is the same thing the PSENG guy was giving me a tutorial on, which we knew, is that Israel was the canary in the coal mine. Now, during the Intifada of 2001 to 2002, one of the worst times in Israel's history, it really lasted a lot longer than that, but during that time when you couldn't walk into a cafe without fear of losing your life, you couldn't go out for coffee without fear of losing your life, Israel created a system where at every major bus stop in every major metropolis and every major, even small cafes, there stood outside a guard. He stands outside and before you walk in, he wands you and checks you. And you say, but I'm just going for coffee. And he doesn't care if I'm walking in with my yarmulke and my backpack, and frankly, I don't look like such a threat, or someone who does. Every single person gets stopped and wanted. And when you eat at one of these cafes, whether you have pasta or salad or a cup of coffee, everyone is charged a surcharge, called a security surcharge, that pays for him. And I've got news for you all. They haven't gone away. The suicide bombings have, but the guards haven't. They're still there. Another case of canaries in the coal mine for the state of Israel. In the wake of this uh, unspeakable tragedy that we haven't even begin, begun to taste, yet alone digest, we are reminded that our people are the canaries in the coal mine for so many of these tactics and issues that have to do with world safety. The only thing that was uh, Liberating and incredibly painful at the very same time, this paradox was something I said to my family when we were watching the news before Shabbat yesterday and even after when Shabbat came in and we were seeing all this unfold. I said sarcastically, this is all about the settlements. The sarcasm was attacking a theater and attacking a cafe and attacking a football game, a soccer game between France and Germany. It has absolutely nothing to do with 250,000 Jews that live in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria. This has absolutely nothing to do with the notion of, of capitalism or croissants. And there is absolute freedom in the borders in France. This is an attack on humanity and civility. And for all of those who fall into this camp of saying, yes, but, when talking about Israel when it's the victim of crime, and I don't care if you're a Jew who talks about it or a non-Jew, stop it. 
Just stop it. You're, you're looking at a person who will tell you unequivocally, Israel is far from perfect. Israel makes many, many mistakes and things that as a Zionist make me cringe in its leadership and its behavior, both religiously and secularly. But there's no justification, none whatsoever, for the killing of innocent civilians as they go to a concert or they go out for coffee. And can you imagine our level of life being terrorized that we want to go to the stop and shop in Closter or to the AMP or to the, the Starbucks or to it's Greek to me or whatever place it is we want to eat at. And we're going to pay a surcharge. I don't care about the cost, but we have to wait to go inside because our cars are going to be examined for bombs and we're going to be frisked before we can go into a restaurant so we can sit down in peace. Is this the world in which we're coming to? And for all of us who say, it's not going to happen in Closter or Bergen County. Come on. Think hard. Think hard about where and when this can happen. Because we saw it happen in Sydney, Australia just over a year ago. We saw it happen in the resort community in the Sinai Peninsula. We saw it happen in Belgium. We saw it happen last year in France. And it can happen in New York, in Chicago, in Miami, in Tampa, in Clearwater, in Wichita. And it can happen in Closter. And it reminds us of the division that's happening between those who have no regard or value for life and those that do. And the war that's been waged on both. So in the wake of this unspeakable crime, I don't stand here with any incredible solution or understanding or perspective that can make sense of the nonsensical, that can make us understand the ununderstandable. There is nothing about us who sit in this room, who value family, who value life, who believe in others around us in tikkun olam that can make sense of this despicable and horrid act. So I'm not gonna even try. I'm not even gonna try and explain to you, ah, oh, they had it coming or they knew this. No, no such thing. No one has this coming to them, no one. But when we turn to our tradition in moments like these, we remember that we have to learn from our past. And our past reminds us a few things. One, that we learned in 1968 and 1969, reactively, how it was to make airline travel, at least to Israel and for Jews, safer, because they were threatened. And we learned that after 2001. And this is another case where we're going to have to adjust and adapt, not if, but when this happens in our backyard. And the second thing that at this moment I think is even more important than that analysis is a moment for us to pray. Because in a time when we don't have answers, in a time when there really is nothing to answer, we turn to our tradition and we pray. We don't know the power of prayers on those who we're praying for, but I do believe in the power of prayers of those who utter them. And my prayer that I hope gives me a sense of strength and solace, direction and fortitude is that first of all, all of those who lost their lives rest in a sense of peace and their families be consoled and know that we here, regardless of their background, faith, or origin, send our condolences to them. Those who are injured and those who survived, that we send our prayers for a speedy recovery to them. And those who have just been traumatized through the proximity of what happened, both in near and far, know that our hearts ache with theirs because of the love that we share for humanity and values. And 
that we pray that somehow in the world that brought miracles from our God to all of us, the miracle of existence, the miracle of life, the miracle of the sun rising and setting every day, the miracle of Noah surviving the flood, the miracle of Isaac not being slaughtered, the miracle of Joseph not being killed and being reunited with his family, provide all of us with the sense of miracle. A miracle as great as crossing the Sea of Reeds. A miracle that we live in a time where we will no longer know of this sense of hatred and violence. And may it bring us together in peace. And until then, may we be vigilant in fighting it.